Welcome, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us um, today and good afternoon. My name's Britta Jones and I'm your host for this Robert Dixon Memorial Animal Welfare Symposium. We've got a fantastic range of, of panellists today. Um, we've got, I'd uh, like to welcome Dr Larry Vogelnest. He's a senior veterinarian at Taronga Conservation Society Australia, based at Taronga's um, Wildlife Hospital in Sydney. Larry is one of Australia's most experienced wildlife vets, um, specialising in zoo medicine across a broad range of species. He's also an alumni of the Sydney School of, of Veterinary Science. Cat uh, Littlewood um, completed her veterinary training at Massey University in New Zealand, where she now lectures in animal welfare. Cat's a small animal practitioner, and her PhD research focuses on the veterinarian's role in end-of-life management of older and chronically ill cats. Martin Lenz is joining us. Um, he's the Director of Veterinary Services and Animal Welfare at Queensland Racing Integrity Commission. So the Commission has responsibility for all three racing codes in Queensland, greyhounds, harness racing and thoroughbred racing. Martin's worked as a clinical and regulatory vet in the UK, in Singapore and Australia. And like Larry, Martin's also an alumni of, of Sydney Vet School. Also joining us is uh, Dr. Emma Whiston. She's the founder of My Best Friend, Australia's first dedicated veterinary home euthanasia service. Emma established My Best Friend in 2004 to provide pets and their families with private, peaceful and dignified care in the last stages of their time together. And Emma's a graduate of the University of Melbourne Vet School, as is our fifth panellist, uh, Dr. Peter Bennett. Peter's an Associate Professor in Oncology and Small Animal Medicine here at the University of Sydney. Peter has a wealth of experience in the care of companion animals with cancer and is passionate about improving the quality of life for his patients. So I'd like to welcome all of our panellists here today. So talking about death is difficult. Um, we tend to shy away from it, tend to shy away from the word itself instead of using terms like lost or passed away. And the debate around voluntary euthanasia in human societies is fraught with ethical challenges and political hurdles. But when it comes to non-human animals, we don't seem to have the same compunction in, in playing God with their lives. We decide on the method and the timing of the end of life of billions of farm animals every year as a routine aspect of agricultural production. But what about non-production animals? The pets we share our homes and our lives with, the exotic species we marvel at when we visit the zoo, the thoroughbreds and greyhounds who begin their lives in racing but may only last a few years on the track, and those wild animals whose lives we increasingly disrupt and disturb through human development. If and when should we intervene to end the lives of these animals? What form should that intervention take? And how do we navigate through the ethics of conduct in this space and potential conflicts of interest? and ultimately who should be making these end-of-life decisions. So through their training and, and experience as vets, our five panellists today have all had direct experience of ending the lives of animals and of wrestling with these tough questions. So let's get on to some of those questions. Um, thanks, everybody, again, for, for joining us. 
Um, I think many of us have experienced personally how hard it is to be involved in making the decision to end the life of, a, of an animal, mostly our family pets, and the feelings of bereavement that can follow that. Indeed, given that our pets generally live relatively short lives compared to us, we might go through this many times over. Um, Emma, you established your home euthanasia service to help pets and their owners navigate this space in a comfortable environment. Can you tell us how you go about this? Hi, Better. Thank you for that. Um, I, I will um, go about that. But firstly, I wanted to start with um, by sharing a great quote by Dr. Jessica Zitter, who is a human end-of-life physician in the US. So she's board certified in both um, critical care as well as uh, palliative care, which is an interesting, sometimes paradoxical um, combination. So she's well qualified to say, and I quote, because helping patients die takes as much technique and expertise as saving lives. Some of you might find that a challenging concept, but I think that's a key um, to, to, um, in, into what I'm going to be talking about. I think that further training and, um, uh, is required. So end-of-life care done poorly um, may inadvertently result in animal neglect and abuse. And as veterinarians, we, we must advocate for the animal while providing care and education for the owner, um, which then in turn helps the animal from, from their suffering. So I think when we get into this area, we're not traditionally trained in, in the care. We're more, we're more trained in the cure of things at university rather than in, in the care. And I think that is changing uh, rapidly. Um, yeah, so I think training is... When I established um, My Best Friend in 2004, um, it, it was to create... Uh, as Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz says, there's no place like home, and that's what I believe in. I know it's not for everybody. Uh, but I grew up with my father as a vet, um, doing helping him, um, and so, in effect, I've had 50 years of, of um, you know, thinking about um, the dying process and the best way to go about it. And I really, um, my practice offers fear-free um, comfort care in the for animals and their families in the last stages of their life together yeah so and it takes into account um, um, you know we need an, we need an interdisciplinary team using multimodal uh, therapies um, and we need an organized um, system to try and make this work properly so that we are in fact doing the work in the in the most optimal way. Um, Emma I imagine that there are there are situations certainly where you might know you you might feel as a veterinarian that it's it's the best decision for an animal is euthanasia but perhaps the owner hasn't arrived at that point how do you help them get there? Okay, now that is essential. So the question we are all often asked is, when is it time? Uh, is it too soon? Is it too late? So um, in order to, to help the owner, um, our service, so it's all in-home, we go for a pre-euthanasia um, um, consultation in the home, which is an hour to an hour and a half. Um, and we cover, um, we, we go over what the uh, disease 
process is that's occurring, its prognosis, um, what the trajectory of that disease may be. Um, we look at the animal's needs. We can see them in their environment. We can advise on, um, you know, they may, may be coping much better in their environment than, than they are in the clinic. So we don't often see that. Um, we discuss, um, we do um, discuss the human beings, psychosocial factors. So we discuss what they need, what their uh, feelings and beliefs and values are. We take all of that into account and we make a personalised plan. Um, just through helping people, we also do use uh, tools such as quality of life assessment tools to try and quantify quantitate the quality of life, as well as using the traditional, you know, um, um, ways of looking at a, a dog and knowing that, you know, they are at the end. Um, uh, but we try to quantitate it for the owners and we provide a lot of information. We also go through um, a lot of people are scared of the euthanasia process and that sometimes is what is um, delaying uh, that process occurring uh, so we go through what to expect during that process and in home um, I always look I haven't euthanized an animal um, and the dogs and cats mainly but for the past 16 years I have I have not euthanized an animal without using a pre-medication first. And I think um, that's, that's for me, um, for the animal, for the owners, for the veterinarian in attendance, um, providing a pre-med and providing a really smooth death transition um, helps everybody. And, and we know there have been studies done to say that the way the euthanasia is handled does impact directly upon the, the pet owner's grief process. Thanks, Emma. Um, Peter, your specialism is, is oncology and, and we all know how arduous cancer treatment can be for human patients. What about for pets? Is it, is it in a dog's or a cat's best interest to be treated with chemotherapy, for example, or is this something where we're acting in our interests as owners um, rather than in the animal's interests? I think it's always um, a balance in these cases, the you know, my philosophy, which is to give the animals as much good quality of life as possible rather than giving them as much life as possible, um, is an important aspect. I mean, all the treatments that we use and recommend in cancer patients, which are the same ones that are used in people uh, with chemotherapy, radiation therapy and surgery, they all carry risks of adverse effects on the patient and we have to balance those against what's the benefit uh, for the patient. So extending a patient's life for three months where two months of that time is in poor quality of life, unable to do the things that they want to do, having no interest because they're unwell, they're painful, um, is for me, not an acceptable option. If we can extend a patient's life for two years and over that two years they have two weeks where they've got sick or they've got periods of being uncomfortable, which can be managed with medications, then that's, you know, that's the ideal that we want to aim for. It would be really helpful if we knew what the outcome was going to be and what the tolerance was going to be before we started but that's where we have to adjust our thoughts and our plans 
as we go along. And, and do the animals that you deal with experience similar symptoms um, to, to humans undergoing the, the same sort of treatment? How, how much do we know about the experience of those animals um, through treatment? I mean, some of the signs are the same. So yeah, they can get nausea, they can get loss of appetite, they can get um, vomiting, they can have diarrhoea. Uh, we can see them get fevers because their white cell counts have dropped. But we are aware that those things can happen. The treatments we use are much less aggressive than similar treatments in people. Uh, if we treat a lymphoma patient in people, they might get four or five drugs at the same time. Uh, we give one at a time and they're spread out. So we see less um, side effects. We also get less benefit, but the balance for us is the quality of that life rather than the quantity. So we accept that we're not going to cure as many because if we're going to make them sick for six months, we can't explain to them that that's what's going to happen and they're not making the choice. So we have discussions with the owners and between the owners and the vets, we make decisions, um, but the pets don't have a, a say in it. Thanks, Peter. Um, Kat, in, in your PhD research, I know you've been looking at, at specifically at the role of vets in end-of-life decisions for, for, for cats. So I understand that as part of that, you've surveyed owners and vets about how these decisions are carried out in practice. Can you tell us a bit about what you found? Yeah, so my whole PhD is basically the vet's role in end-of-life management. Um, it's something that really interests me. Um, I'm particularly interested in the vet's role in welfare, but specifically, you know, I'm asking questions, you know, what role do vets have in end-of-life management? And I've broken end-of-life management down into three areas. So I'm looking here at the technical management, so actually the euthanasia, um, how to euthanase, um, that decision-making process, and then that grief management as well, because I think that's all one part of that same package. Um, so I did, I've done two studies as part of my PhD. Um, my first study, I was looking at how it's taught across Australasian vet schools. My second study, which is the one you mentioned, um, is looking at how it's done in practice. So that was the one where I interviewed cat owners that had recently euthanized their cat. And I also interviewed the vet that was involved in that euthanasia. So I wanted to find out, you know, what are the main factors in end-of-life decision-making? You know, what are they both thinking about and what are the individual differences there? I also want to think to see how they assess quality of life, if there's any differences between how owners look at it and how vets might look at it. And then I really wanted to get to the nitty-gritty, which is what the vet's role is. So because that's the second study in my PhD and I'm still doing my PhD, some of my results are still, you know, coming through. But I've so far I've had the chance to look through the owner interviews in detail. Um, and I've got some really interesting things coming out. So I've kind of split what people were talking about and the owners were talking about into, in terms of a decision-making into the cat factors, um, owner factors and vet factors that were helping them make these decisions. The cat factors may not be too surprising to a lot of people. So a lot of these were focusing on survival needs. So, you know, was the animal eating? Was it in pain? But then there were some interesting ones coming out as well that, the behavior changes in the animal were really the most important for the owner. So mm. the interactions 
with the owner, interactions with the environment, sometimes interactions with other pets that they had as well. They definitely noticed differences there. Another one I found really interesting in, in the cat one in particular was, was the prognosis. So owners were really keen to know what, what was going to happen. Um, and that was really important to them. And obviously as vets, we sometimes can't give them that. But to the owners, that was so important. Um, yeah, that was definitely coming through again and again through my interviews. And then in terms of owner individual factors, so I've got them talking about their sort of attitude to death and how they perceive death. And again, some of them were talking about the human euthanasia aspect. Um, some of them were talking about thinking about how they may have recently had a loss of their own with their, in their family and how they couldn't make decisions like that with their loved family members that they could for their, for their cat. So, yeah, really interesting things. Um, in terms of vet, the vet's um, role that the owners perceived, most of my owners were coming through, they actually really liked the vet facilitating a decision by giving options, but then also when the time came and when it was appropriate, actually encouraging them to euthanize because sometimes it was that final step that was really difficult for them. And I definitely had the, the, a big feature coming through, a big theme was that having different vets that they were seeing was really difficult for owners. So sometimes in multi-clinic practice, um, practices, they can see different vets with, at different times with their animals and it can be quite hard for them. That um, the relationship that you have as an owner with your vet is, is really crucial in, in terms of those decisions. Emma, if you would um, ha have the opportunity to, to talk to future vets now about how to prepare for those conversations, what, what's key to that? What do um, vet students need to know about how to prepare themselves for, for having those difficult conversations with owners? Yeah, it's... Um... <laughs> There are so many things. I have um, lectured over the past couple of years to the um, Melbourne Polytechnic Bachelor of Veterinary Nursing um, degree students, and um, I would love to lecture to vet students. Um, there's, I think it's going to sound maybe not very scientific, but there is an art to it as well as a science. Um, I guess, again, I was lucky to learn that art from a young age. Um, I think it's important for students to, um, you can't just go straight into doing, I mean, I, I'm dedicated, I just do um, end-of-life care. You need to get experience first, of course. But um, listening listening to, to them and hearing their stories, um, the people's stories, um, having time, I, I think, this is a real problem, I think, with uh, in, in clinic um end of life or, or ageing or geriatric or terminally ill pets, um, you don't get a lot of time. And so I think um, advocating for extended consultation times um, in the practice that they end up in is a really good idea because it takes time. And um, so time, time and art, you must look after yourself, of course, um, mentally and, and spiritually and, you know, uh, and I think training, further training, I would love to see end-of-life care be a, a veterinary specialty um, in Australia um, during my lifetime. I have done further training, but it's all been in, in America. So I have certification with the International Association of 
hospice and palliative care. And for any um, students out there, they're a really great resource and they provide a terrific um, certification training training course. So I don't know if that's really answered things. The other thing is when you're actually in a euthanasia, because technically, um, you know, it, it takes time and experience, but my three words of advice would be to stay calm, stay compassionate and stay confident. So take deep breaths and, you know, these are practical things. Uh, and Kat was talking about, you know, the technicalities of these things. Um, yeah, but in terms of looking after the owner at the end of the lead, um, that's that's a big new topic. Um, veterinary Clinics of North America did put out um, in 2011 Fantastic, um, one of their books um, in their series covering all of this stuff. So I think there are resources out there. I just want to say something there. Um, I agree with Emma definitely on the, you know, the importance of it being it's so important. Like we've got references that tell us that, you know, the better that clinics are doing at euthanasia, the more likely that they're going to have clients coming back to them. Um, you know, mm. that time, that extra time that you talked about is not wasted. That, you know, and even if you just put it down to money, mm. <laughs> um, yeah, that extra time that you give for a euthanasia consult is, is absolutely not, not wasted. Because, yeah, often yeah. often as a new graduate, you'll have, a, you know, a, a bundle of surgeries waiting for you in a full waiting room and um, certainly now a lot of the clinics in Australia are doing um, having specialised rooms comfort room or putting up a sign when there's euthanasia occurring or doing it at the end of the day etc but yeah and I think it's really important my interdisciplinary team, um, I want to say, does include the primary vet. We have 150 vet clinics in Melbourne that refer to us and we love to collaborate with them. I think it takes more. I think we need more more training and mm. more understanding of the human psychosocial needs, um, which, you know, when I went, was at university, it certainly wasn't, you know, it wasn't sort of taught. And I don't know what it's like now, but, um, you know, I think it's we need more. Better. Mm. Getting better. Good to hear. So um, changing tack slightly, um, we, we've just been focusing on that really strong emotional bond that we have with our companion animals. But let, let's 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 move away from from our pets and look at um, animals in a, a zoo environment, where obviously there's the the owner animal bond is a little bit different. So, Larry, in your experience, so who makes the decision um, to end the life of, a, of an animal at, at Taronga and, and how do you go about ensuring that that process stands up to, to public scrutiny, for example? Yeah, thanks, Peter. I mean, there, there are multiple circumstances under which uh, zoo animals may be euthanised and uh, many of them are uh, welfare-based decisions um, obviously, uh, in, in many circumstances, the vets make a decision based on uh, an animal that uh, has uh, incurable disease or, uh, you know, it has an obviously poor quality of life. I suppose the, the sort of slightly more challenging ones for us are those uh, for, for sort of ageing and chronically ill animals. And um, uh, I suppose for, for various reasons, uh, improved veterinary care, husbandry, nutrition, um, uh, sort of lack of disease and trauma and stress-free environments. Uh, zoo animals are living a lot longer uh, now uh, nowadays, and, and certainly live a lot longer uh, compared to their wild counterparts. And so, 
a lot of zoos now are dealing with the, the you know the challenges of, of having a lot of older animals and uh, ensuring you know good quality of life as they age and are planning and making uh, end of life uh, decisions uh, based on welfare and quality of life and uh, so uh, in those situations um, and similar to to companion animals and even uh, you know in human care um, uh, we've developed tools to sort of uh, objectively um, assess an animal's health and quality of life to facilitate a welfare-focused um, end-of-life management and decisions to euthanize. And uh, it's particularly challenging and important to have these tools in zoo animals because in many cases, uh, because of the sort of the cryptic nature of many zoo animals and wild animals, and they are wild animals, it's, it's often hard to, to identify uh, when an animal um, is aging and and when those degenerative processes are developing, and sometimes uh, by the time an animal is actually showing clinical signs of the degenerative process of aging, the the processes are actually already quite advanced. So, so we have these tools to to start assessing animals. Um, uh, in fact, before they they age, um, and and. Various uh, zoos have different processes, but ours um, is a two-stage process. Firstly, is identifying the aging animals and what the, what the trigger is for com- commencing our assessment, and and we use uh, what's called an expected longevity, and that's a an a, 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 a long age at which um, uh, expected longevity is calculated. The age at which about ninety percent of a of a, pop- a captive population of animals based on stud books will have died. And the trigger for commencing our assessment process is when they reach 80% of that expected longevity. Um, and so all of our animals, uh, uh, most of them are known age and we identify when that process will start. And then uh, a, a group of people is convened and it's uh, usually uh, senior keepers that know the animal very well, a vet, uh, one of our population managers, uh, our behavioural biologists. We have a team of behavioural biologists at the zoo we get together and we assess the animal against specific criteria, both psych- uh, physical and um, psychological criteria uh, on the tool, and that generates a score, uh, automatically generates a score uh, with the tool that we've developed. And then that score will guide a decision uh, process in terms of whether ongoing care is required with regular review or, or a decision to euthanize mm. the animal is made. Thanks, Larry. So that's looking at the end of life as animals are getting older and potentially becoming ill. What about population management in the zoo environment? So, um, I mean, we know that, you know, all zoos face financial pressure. Um, mm-hmm. the, 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 the COVID situation we know in Australia has put a lot of pressure on zoos. Um, you've got limited enclosures and, you know, that footprint that you've got to fit inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what about those difficult decisions about actually euthanizing animals that are, are young and healthy but just don't fit the profile of what the zoo is looking yeah, yeah. for? I mean, I suppose uh, those circumstances or situations are actually quite rare in most zoos and, and I suppose we specifically try and manage our animal populations to to avoid the need to you know, to euthanize uh, healthy animals. And, um, you know, we, most zoos have uh, uh, established um, policies and well-established um, guiding principles uh, to guide those decisions to euthanize animals under different circumstances. And I, I suppose uh, the way we operate, and it's not the same in all zoos, we, we try and avoid the need uh, to euthanize healthy animals through 
you know, managing the populations by use of, uh, of contraception and, and controlling reproduction and, and ensuring that every animal that's bred will have a purpose and an, an, an outlet. But, you know, there are, there are certainly situations where healthy animals uh, are euthanized and many of those uh, are not so much around sort of the population uh, welfare management, although, you know, there, there are some situations where, where that does occur. I mean, just to, just for example, we have animals that we spe- specifically breed for for food production for for to feed our animals, and and those are mainly like rats and mice and and um, and invertebrates. Uh, there are situations, uh, so like you know, if you have a, a biosecurity event where you've got to manage a, a disease outbreak, for example, um, we might uh, have to euthanize animals in that situation. Um, sometimes uh, for for species like frogs, where we, we we breed thousands of them, if we're doing a reintroduction program, we will uh, euthanise a small proportion of those animals, and usually tadpoles for disease screening before release. Obviously, there's situations where a dangerous animal might escape, and um, which thankfully is very rare. Uh, but if if human life is uh, is um, at risk, uh, then a decision might make, be made to, to euthanize an animal. But there are, you know, those situations where uh, where there are species where breeding uh, uh, is important for for uh, the, the the health of the population, the health of individuals, and it's usually animals which produce larger numbers of young, um, and uh, and and it's 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 important for those animals to breed on a regular basis that there may be situations then where we will will euthanize uh, the surplus animals and those are often species like like uh, you know native native rodents um small carnivorous marsupials it's not often that we get to that situation with the sort of you know some of the some of the larger animals so um you know and there are you know situations for example if we have a a bonded pair of animals, and one of the one of the individuals dies, or or is euthanized for for one reason or another. Often it's old age, and you know what do you do with that that animal that's you know now on its own, and particularly sometimes it's very challenging to find uh, a, an opportunity to repair repair that animal with some with another animal, and often it's not the best in that animal's best interests, and so we might elect to euthanize that animal, mm. even though it's healthy. Thanks, Larry. Um, I think we're we're now sort of in this space where we're thinking about um, animals that that perhaps lack a, a purpose in mm. terms of the the sort of the role that they were um, yeah yeah re- brought into. And I'd like to bring Martin in here um, because this is very much at the pointy end of some of the issues that have been raised in the racing industry in the last few years. So, uh, Martin, I know that you've been quite closely involved in the fallout from a couple of quite high-level exposés about racing. And, and firstly, let's talk about greyhound racing because one of the shocking statistics that came out of the ABC Four Corners program five years ago and the subsequent inquiries were, were the numbers of greyhounds that were being euthanized every year, um, up to 17,000 across Australia. Um, healthy animals in theory. Um, five years on from that, how are those sorts of decisions now being, those end-of-life decisions being made in, the, in greyhound racing? Peter, look, the um, challenge of um, overbreeding and, um, you know, meeting, meeting a demand for racing is obviously um, a continuous one. You're, you know, the the um, 
especially in greyhounds, um, you know, litters are bred. Um, individuals within that litter will have, uh, you know, differing abilities to um, race up to the um, expectation of the owners and trainers. Um, the big focus is really on um, making sure that the animals, all animals uh, in that litter have an opportunity, um, you know, to not just uh, have a racing career, but also, um, you know, be given the opportunity to be assessed um, and hopefully find a, a second home. Uh, and in particular in the greyhounds, look, the, the younger the dog, um, the easier it is actually to rehome that, that greyhound, okay? It, it just, um, you know, for various reasons, obviously the, um, you know, the, the um, animal's um, ability to, be, uh, to adjust to a new environment, a home environment, uh, you know, is, is improved uh, with, with a younger animal. Um, some of the wear and tear type injuries that accumulate over a long racing career uh, are obviously also minimised in a, in a young animal with limited exposure to racing. So a big part of the focus is to ensure that there is a uh, life worthwhile um, for every animal that's, that's bred, uh, you know, to be a racing animal. Um, and Part of that is also obviously to try and determine uh, exactly how many animals are actually required to, um, you know, to participate in the racing industry and to try and match up the, um, you know, the breeding uh, effort um, to, to match that demand. But as I said, it's, it's racing, but also very much now the focus is on life after racing. And, you know, that's, that's really um, where, where that uh, second purpose, you know, comes in. And, and um, we haven't talked about it, but, you know, it's, it's the quality of life that's important for that animal. So if it's, if it's been bred um, and it might only have a short racing career, we should also make some efforts at the start of that animal's life to try and ensure that it's transitioned into retirement is, you know, its success, um, the success of that transition is maximised. So mm -hmm. there are around, you know, socialisation um, and exposure to different different um, stimuli that can dramatically influence the success of, of rehoming down the track. That certainly seems to be a, a, a big topic of conversation in the, the thoroughbred racing industry at, at the moment. And of course, that was... The, uh, the treatment of retired racehorses and particularly uh, those horses going to slaughter was the subject of another ABC um, 730 investigation last year. I mean, I, I've personally experienced a huge public outcry in response to that program. And I think it wasn't just because of the, the treatment, um, the, the cruel treatment that occurred to some of the horses that were shown, but also the realisation that horses were being, that the horses bred for racing were being slaughtered for food. Do you think we can solve these sorts of problems just with animal welfare and veterinary science or is there an underlying ethical issue here to do with our relationship, particularly with horses as a species? Is, is that something that you grapple with? 
Yeah, look, Bitter, it's, it is um, certainly a, a, a challenge, and it's a challenge for uh, not just the racing industry, but also for the, um, you know, the wider community. Um, <clears throat> you know, whatever we accept that we are going to be using animals for a purpose, and that purpose, you know, could be um, Larry uh, with with the animals that he takes care of in the zoo. Um, it's animals that are companion animals. Uh, it's animals that are bred to produce milk, fiber, meat, and it's animals that are that are um, bred to um, you know um, be used in the entertainment industries and. I suppose racing fits into the latter category. Um, the challenge is, you know, what what do you do with that animal at the end of that that life cycle? You know, and I, I think um, Paul McGreevy is a is a great um, proponent of the idea of, you know, looking at animal welfare in a in a holistic setting so you're looking at the welfare of the animal you're looking at the welfare of the people associated with that animal and you're also looking at the um the wider environment that that animal um you know lives in and 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 um you know forms a part of and you know the the idea of of um slaughtering um, an animal at the end of its life is is quite confronting, um, you know, for many people. But when you look at it in that sort of wider scope, um, you know, the idea of um, how do you most environmentally, um, you know, with environmental uh, principles as well as ethical principles, how, how do you deal with you know, an animal such as a horse, um, half a ton of, of, of animal, um, how do you deal with that issue uh, in, in a sustainable way? And, you know, when you, when you take those sort of considerations into account, um, then perhaps the idea of a, and I stress the, the importance of having a very well-managed and well-controlled uh, process, um, but but the idea then of, of perhaps um, you know having having slaughter um, as part of that end of life process, it perhaps starts to make a little bit more sense. And look, I realise that mm. um, you know there are going to be a, a proportion of people that that you know will will find that uh, very very difficult to deal with, but. Um, you know, there's also going to be a proportion of people that say, well, that, you know, that is a, a significant mm -hmm. issue. But it is perhaps a, a way of, of dealing with that issue. But, yeah, but hopefully at the, the last resort in, in any situation. And there's uh, an aspect of this that we haven't touched on yet, and that's the, the stress um, that affects all of you in making these decisions and how difficult it is um, over time in terms of, of the stress on the decision maker, on on vets, um, and I, I'm wondering also if um, Emma, in particular, you're, I think you're based in Victoria. How much the current situation under the COVID restrictions has made that mm -hmm. whole process so much more <laughs> difficult for you? Um, yeah, would you like to comment on that? 
Yeah, well, it's it has um, meant most veterinary clinics um, with an animal that needs to be euthanised are uh, some are not allowing any of the human beings into the clinic for for to be present for the euthanasia. Some are allowing one family member. Um, some are going out to the car and doing it in the car. So it's not not ideal. Um, and so we. <laughs> Prior to, um, you know, up until the start of this, we we would we would see, on average, about forty euthanasias a month, um, and that number has doubled in in the past months because, um, you know, it's just not acceptable for a lot of people to drop their their family member off um, at a clinic, and I can understand completely um, the clinics are in a really Challenging, challenging and difficult situation. And um, as far as I know, there's been no coronavirus outbreaks at any veterinary clinics because they're doing a great job. Because vets, um, you know, we all we all uh, did microbiology at uni and epidemiology and understand um, in terms of zoonoses and you know uh, disease control. Anyway, that's by the by. So yeah, so but I'm I'm um, able to go into people's homes, so I gown and um, mask, etc. Etc. And most people um, have been in, you know, at home for for quite a long time now. So we assess the risk, but yeah, still still go in. So um, really happy to be able to, yeah, keep mm. going. Um, obviously, that um, you know, we need to be aware of compassion fatigue, um, and obviously, um, you know, and I do a lot of self care stuff, um, lots of sleep and meditation, and I have mentors and I have support and um, etc. But um, sometimes it takes a while to find those things that support you. Um, Dr. Um, Nadine um, Hamilton, pardon me, um, in Queensland. I don't know if, if you guys are aware and for the students out there, she's, she put out an amazing book last year in February called Coping with uh, Stress and Burnout as a Veterinarian. Um, it, it's doctoral work and it's really, really interesting and really, really helpful. Um, so I would recommend that book to, to any of the students out there. Thanks, Emma. Um, just I, I've got the, the slider questions up now and, and mm. um, one of them is um, sort of pertinent to this because it's asking um, in response to a question I had early um, about a situation where what if the owner of an animal is ready um, to euthanise their animal but the vet thinks it's too soon or not, or not time to do that? And um, I'm guessing in that sort of situation, um, that's one where, um, you know, there's going to be increased stress in terms of, of um, you as a veterinarian making a decision. Yeah, and I think that's where um, having the time to sit, you know, on someone's couch and um, have a cup of tea with them for an hour and discuss, you know, what, how, you know, and I often do say to people, look, you know, Ralph is ready. Ralph's ready. You're not ready, but it's time for you to get ready because um, you need to, do, to to prepare. So we do certain things to prepare. You need to do some work um, because your animal is is ready to go. So I'm fairly um, um, frank with people, and I think after a lot of discussion, um, you know, and it's not just about the animal. It's not just about the owner. It's this whole holistic thing that I think we're all talking about. So and to achieve the optimal outcome for the for the animal. 
yeah, mm-hmm. ultimately, because we advocate for animals as uh, as veterinarians. Mm. Thank you. Can um, I say something there? Yes, mm. can't go ahead. <laughs> so I did have a couple of, um, in my interviews, I did have a couple of owners saying that their vet w- wasn't ready for the euthanasia, that they yeah. thought that they booked an appointment expecting euthanasia, and then they had their vet kind of convinced them otherwise and it was really hard for the owners it was really hard because they'd already kind of accepted it they'd made that decision mm-hmm. they'd booked the appointment they'd gone in and then there's yep. vets saying oh no actually it's just painful we can get some pain relief and it was yeah it was very very difficult for the owner so I think there definitely needs to be that recognition in the vet mm. that yeah, I, I come across yeah. that a lot, um, and um, that's often when um, the the primary vet now refers for a, a you know a, a specialised end of life consultation. Um, you know, it, it's again I come back to the clinic environment is not always, you know, the best way to see you know what what the animal is is really like because there's adrenaline. A lot of animals are nervous at the vet, and there is adrenaline going, cortisol, mm. and you know dogs that are you know not walking at home for 23 hours of the day you know in the vet clinic they're up and about so it's kind of yeah it is really tricky um and a lot of people really want their vets to say to them if this were my dog i would really consider euthanasia but um again we were taught you know in my time at university that we weren't meant to say that it had to be the Mm. client's decision Mm. and um however no it's about it's 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 about helping that client to make yeah. that decision and and um, you know empowering them to do that. Um, one thing I say to, to people is you know euthanasia is in Greek it means a good death. We're providing a good death, um, you know, and it is a valid you know and humane and legal treatment option. And that's what I say to the vets I talk to. Yes, treatment option. It is a treatment in my mind. It's not a disaster. It's not giving up. Um, you know, it's okay. Thanks, Emma. Um, Peter, there's a, a related question for you. Um, do you ever find yourself recommending against chemo because the animal's not behaviourally suited to the frequent visits and, and other treatments? Uh, the answer is yes. And it occurs both during the initial consultation, uh, working in feral practice, I have the advantage of time so our consultations are an hour, you know, even the revisits are half an hour, which is a luxury you know, compared to what happens in general practice. Yeah. Um, and when we're talking about options for clients, we talk about how the pet will cope with the procedures involved. You know, recommending a major surgery where they may need to be hospitalised for a week or you know, a radiation therapy where they're in isolation for a week. That's not uh, an option for all pets. And you know, if they are very anxious, we can sometimes use um, anxiolytic drugs to improve their benefit uh, or their tolerance. But you know, if we need to make them you know, a zombie to be able to get them into a clinic, then the whole experience is not going to be good for them. And I've also had some pets who have tolerated at the start, but with repeated visits, they haven't, and will stop treatment based on the animal's response rather than all um, response to treatment. Thanks, Peter. Um, we've got a question about euthanasia out of convenience, so that the idea that 
um, when an animal's completely healthy and happy, but the owner comes to the vet and says they'd like to have their pet euthanized because they're moving house or they haven't got time to look after it. Um, what, what's, what, what's your process in that kind of situation? I, I guess I have an issue with the word convenience in terms of that definition of euthanasia. I'm not sure it's that inconvenient for an owner to bring a pet or animal to the vet to ask for euthanasia. So, I mean, this might be contentious, but they have other options of dispatching with their animal and they've chosen to do it in a way that they consider humane. So I think that we need to take that into account a little bit as vets when we get an animal brought to us, because I don't really think convenient euthanasia is the right terminology to be using because, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I agree, Kat, Mm, definitely. Yeah. So, Kat, are you suggesting that, um, I mean, obviously, um, one of the options in a situation like that is to take your pet to the RSPCA or or a similar organisation. Are you suggesting that sometimes that's something that an owner might choose not to do? Yeah, so, I mean, whatever they choose to do, take it to the SPCA, dump it somewhere, take it somewhere else, or bring it to a vet, they're still they're still asking you for help in a way. Like they're not, they're still kind of admitting that there's nothing that they can do any further. Mm. And, and, and I guess as vets, we kind of want to support that. Um, not everyone will agree with that decision that, to euthanize for that reason. But the fact that they've presented to you, we need to be a little bit considerate of the fact that they're trying. Mm. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because, of course, the owner, that's the word that, that we use because legally um, it's the, uh, the person that owns the animal um, can make the decision about you know, whether its life continues or not. Um, the, that there's some discussion about using the word guardian in this kind of situation so that you're opening the discussion up a bit more and it, it may be that, in fact, a vet should be considering um, you know how much role they, sh- you know how much role you can play in that decision um, when you, we've got this underlying legal responsibility. Who who actually owns the animal is the person that really has to make the decision. Um, I'm really grateful to everybody who's taken part today. I think um, we've had some fantastic questions and um, really appreciate all of you panelists for for taking part and I'd really like to um, encourage everybody to tune in next year Um, this is a the tenth of a series of symposiums where we we tackle a lot of uh, tricky issues in animal welfare um, but it's always um, a really interesting experience learning experience um, to tune in so Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.